0: Welcome to Twin Peaks. My name is Margaret Lanterman. I live in Twin Peaks. I am known as the Log Lady. There is a story behind that. There are many stories in Twin Peaks. Some of them are sad, some funny. Some are stories of madness, of violence. Some are ordinary. Yet they all have about them a sense of mystery, the mystery of life, sometimes the mystery of death, the mystery of the woods, the woods surrounding Twin Peaks. To introduce this story, let me just say it encompasses the all. It is beyond the fire, though few would know that meaning. It is a story of many, but it begins with one. And I knew her. The one leading to the many is Laura
1: Palmer. Laura is the one. Welcome to Lost in Twin Peaks. Today we are con- starting to conclude this two weeks of podcasts with my first archive collection. So this takes us from 2008 to 2015. This was the initial work I did on Twin Peaks where I saw the film for the first time, I grappled with it and then I kind of moved on for six years, came back to it in a big way and really haven't left since. So uh, this is gonna have clips from my video essays, uh, some discussions with other critics, people um, talking about Fire Walk With Me in Twin Peaks And again, my first reaction. So let's actually begin with that. In the summer of 2008, I watched Twin Peaks Firewalk with me for the first time. And I wrote about it immediately afterwards. This was the only piece of Twin Peaks that I wrote a first response to like this. And uh, I had just finished watching the series days earlier. So this was a very fresh take on the film. I didn't know really much of anything about it had not researched much about the reception. I think I knew it had not been well received, but uh, I knew it was a prequel. I was curious to see how it would play out. So this was how I responded. And this is the full review. Uh, I'm going to be sharing clips and reading excerpts from most of my pieces, rather than reading the full uh, the, the full pieces but in this case, I am going to read the full review because I think it's worth going back to that place where I started with all of this that's now resulted in hours and hours of this podcast. If you don't want to know anything about Twin Peaks, particularly the big secret, stop reading now. For weeks, I've been absorbed in Twin Peaks, the 1990 television series masterminded by David Lynch, which kept viewers tuning in week after week to find out who killed Laura Palmer. Twin Peaks was many things. It was often funny, but not in any one easily identifiable way. It could be goofy, knowingly ironic, sweetly silly, absurd. It was also suspenseful, with new twists and turns leading us down a convoluted path to discover who the murderer was. It was frightening, in fact genuinely terrifying, though always just for moments, with comic relief usually coming to the rescue before long. And of course, it was bizarre dancing dwarfs in red rooms, a psychic FBI agent, a woman who carried a log around with her at all times, a black lodge, a white lodge, all cryptic messages alluding to some hidden mystery, a mystery much deeper than the question of who stabbed the teenage beauty queen and threw her body in the river. And also, Twin Peaks was sad, seldom acutely sad, the way it could be acutely frightening, although the scene in which Laura's parents find out she's been murdered dwells on their grief. Rather, there was an undertone of sadness, often so diluted it just seemed part of the pulpy overtones of the show, a mock emotion that Lynch used to get at that eerie ethereal flavor that he was seeking. But every now and then, the sadness seemed genuine, and when each episode closed with the picture of Laura Palmer, so perfect, so beautiful, and now so dead, that sadness lingered. The movie, a prequel which details the last days of Laura knows that it doesn't have any new secrets to reveal. Laura's murderer was exposed halfway through the second season, and though the show tried to move on, it never recovered. Pauline Kael wrote that Marlon Brando's unseen presence pervaded and gave weight to the second Godfather film, even though he wasn't in it. The same is true of Laura Palmer in Twin Peaks, and so what the film offers, far more valuable than the facts or the secrets of her last days, is their texture. We're drawn into the film to see Laura as she really was, I was immensely excited to see Firewalk With Me, and about halfway through, I was convinced that it was a movie of rare power and accomplishment. Now that I've seen all of it, I still think so, and yet, I can't say for certain how I feel about it. First things first, Firewalk With Me is a movie drenched in pain. The jokiness of the series, the purposefully saccharine emotions, the overplayed performances and score are, after the possibly unnecessary first act, out. Laura Palmer's story is not a movie of the week. It doesn't tease and then soothe our emotions, titillating us with the promise of catharsis and keeping us far enough away to avoid getting hurt. It's actually one of the most upsetting works of art I've ever seen. The film opens with a satirical, laconic tone, following two FBI agents as they investigate the murder of a young woman in an isolated hamlet that makes Twin Peaks look like the center of the universe. The local law enforcement elevates standoffishness into an art form, and the diner is inhabited by decaying goons, illuminated by a harsh light that keeps spurting on and off in the background. Clues lead the investigators to the trailer park, where the victim lived, and one agent discovers that there's a green ring under one of the trailers. He crawls under to get it, and we abruptly move on to other matters, never to see him again. Relocating to Philadelphia, The film presents a truly random and exceedingly strange scene involving FBI agents, including Kyle MacLachlan as Special Agent Cooper, who was the star of the series, dreamlike flashes involving the dancing red dwarf from the show, the stringy long-haired man known as Bob, see the YouTube clip at the end of my last entry, and David Bowie in an unnecessary cameo. Throughout this scene, Cooper, almost insanely chipper and cheerful on the show, is grim and somber. It's our first clue that we may not be in Kansas anymore. But then, all of a sudden, we're back on familiar territory. That mountain vista, the sign reading Welcome to Twin Peaks, and most of all the theme music that opened every episode of the show, pulling you into its world of small-town mystery. And then we see her. Laura Palmer. Not a corpse. Not being impersonated by her cousin Maddie. Not a dream vision appearing to Cooper, nor an image on a video recording of a picnic, nor a photograph sitting on the household mantle. Laura Palmer in the flesh, the real thing. She's off to school, and it's as if we've stepped back through a portal into a time we never expected to see. Movies have a unique and potent ability to break one of our surest laws of existence. Time can be shattered, history unearthed, the past rediscovered. Laura walks to school, and we pick up familiar characters along the way. Bobby Briggs, the arrogant jock who's dating Laura, the Dean-like James, who is her secret lover, best friend Donna, no longer played by Lara Flynn Boyle, who is missed. Some disappointment sets in, as we wonder if this will be one of those reunions that doesn't quite capture the magic. After all, the cast members are all a few years older, events are forced to coincide with what we know will happen later, and we're exploring a scenario that was always shrouded in mystery, where our imagination might come up with something more captivating than what we're going to see. But before long, the movie has transcended the show, presenting what the series only evoked, and taking us deeper and deeper into the heart of darkness that Twin Peaks only hinted at. Once the film has reunited us with Laura Palmer, we stay almost entirely with her. There's one aside, showing Cooper in the office with a fellow agent, speculating on her future murder. Eventually, there's no question of cutting away from Laura's story. It simply isn't possible, because she's taken over the film so thoroughly that to try and include anything else would be an absurdity. In fact, One comes to resent that the film bothered to show us anything before her scenes. The early storyline with the FBI agents retroactively seems trivial and even cheap when held up against Laura's suffering. Watching the series, I wasn't sure if Cheryl Lee was a good actor or just had a star quality that held the camera. This movie answers that question. Cheryl Lee gives an outstanding, searing performance. She doesn't hold anything back, and the initial shock of seeing Laura Palmer expose her raw emotions wears off as we become astonished that we could be seeing anyone this emotionally naked. The Laura Palmer hinted in the show was almost a parody of the prom queen with the dark side. As her voice on the tape recorder cooed about how she was suffering, it all seemed like a joke, but one we were all more than eager to buy into. Cheryl Lee strips the cutesy, winking quality away from Laura Palmer and shreds it to pieces. Her pain is real, her anguish is piercing, and at times, it's difficult to watch. There's a scene in which Laura Palmer dresses up and goes out to the roadhouse, a bar which is a familiar sight from the show, but we've never seen it quite like this. Laura steals herself and nods at Jacques, the local pimp, who sends two men over to sit with her. She hurls acidic come on their way, and her bruised, angry sexuality bristles and electrifies the room. I'm tempted to call what unfolds in the next fifteen minutes, to put a time frame on it seems inappropriate, the sequence envelops us like a trance. The most astonishing work David Lynch has ever done. This is really dark stuff, and it goes further than Mulholland Drive, further than Blue Velvet, into a realm that no other movie I've seen quite approaches. But that's not the half of it. Even more upsetting than this scene is a family dinner in the Palmer household. Laura's wound-up father tormenting torments her about the dirtiness of her hands, gripping them and staring into her trembling face, screaming at her as his wife shrieks for him to stop. Watching the show, it always seemed, even after the climactic revelations, that Laura's troubles stemmed from outside her day-to-day family life. Not here. The scene is sickening to watch, and we begin to enter into the troublesome territory. Roger Ebert, in his Zero Star, I think later revised to one star, review of Blue Velvet, wrote, Those very scenes of stark sexual despair are the tip-off to what's wrong with the movie. They're so strong that they deserve to be in a movie that is sincere, honest, and true. But Blue Velvet surrounds them with a story that's marred by sophomoric satire and cheap shots. The director is either denying the strength of his material or trying to defuse it by pretending it's all part of a campy in-joke. And later. There's another thing. Isabella Rossellini is asked to do things in this film that require real nerve. She is degraded, slapped around, humiliated, and undressed in front of the camera. And when you ask an actress to endure those experiences, you should keep your side of the bargain by putting her in an important film. Perhaps because Blue Velvet was never really one of my favorite Lynch films, I never bothered to defend it against that Ebert review. If I had, I would probably say that in Lynch's world, the comic silly aspects only serve to point up the brutality of the reality that emerges. That they are to be taken as an acknowledgement of how lightness exists in the real world, concealing the darker reality underneath, and so on. But having seen Fire Walk With Me, Ebert's words ring in my ears, with a slight revision. When a character, and the audience, is forced to endure traumatic experiences, shouldn't your film be serious? To be fair, Fire Walk With Me is never as jokey or broad as Blue Velvet, or for that matter, Twin Peaks the show. And yet... Do Laura Palmer's brutal sexual experiences belong in the same film as 50s pastiche FBI subplots, celebrity cameos, overwrought musical cues, or even the mystical backwards-talking dwarves and Black Lodges that were so powerful in the series? Suddenly all this supernatural mumbo-jumbo, which had been the weightiest elements of the storyline, seemed demeaning. In the movie's most horrifying scene, Bob crawls through Laura's window, as she says he has done since she was 12, and starts to have sex with her. She keeps asking him who he is, and finally she gets a clear look at his face. It's her father. Twin Peaks is a story about the trauma of incest. This is one of the heaviest subjects a film can take, especially if it's serious about it, and otherwise, what's the point? And the movie is haunting, chilling, horrifying in its presentation of Laura's bottomless pit of anguish. But it also tries to pass Leland Palmer's actions off as the machinations of an evil spirit. Bob tells Laura that, He thought he had fooled her into thinking her rapist was her father, when it was in fact him. She didn't realize the reverse was true. But the reverse isn't really true. No matter how you cut it, the man who comes in her window is Leland Palmer, her father, and if Lynch tries to tell us otherwise, he's just downplaying the shock value of his own material. I'm a great believer in the powers of mysticism, the uncanny, surrealism, and the language of dreams, and I don't believe they are antithetical to serious subjects. But here, there is the irresistible feeling that all of the movie's supernatural elements end up obfuscating, and hence cheapening, the movie's true heart of darkness. Part of me wishes that Lynch had abandoned the Black Lodge, and the Dwarf, and Agent Cooper, and the Dreams, and the FBI investigation. Keep Bob as a metaphor, certainly, a way to shed light on the power of denial, but focus the movie honestly on its appalling subject, the complete destruction of an innocent human being by the person closest to her. To give Lynch credit for appearing to avoid all conscious attempts to play for laughs, he never tries to comfort or soothe his audience. But despite what he thinks, the story he has chosen to tell is not about evil as a metaphysical force or links to the collective unconscious or anything like that, it's about one very fucked up girl. And if Twin Peaks is an important film, I really don't know if it's serious enough. And that bothers me. The very next night... I put up a follow-up post called Critical Idiocy Vis-a-Vis Firewalk With Me. And this was shorter, uh, just citing some of what I'd found out since, and I'll share this here whole as well. This will be my final post on Twin Peaks, I promise, at least for a few days. Last night I reviewed Firewalk With Me, acknowledging my ambivalence about the way the film mixed its highly disturbing subject matter with the supernatural elements. Since then, the film, and especially Laura Palmer, have continued to haunt me. I must concede that Twin Peaks' Fire Walk With Me is one of those films whose raw power overwhelms any troublesome elements, ensuring the film, flaws and all, a place in the pantheon of unforgettable classics. Which makes it all the more astonishing how thoroughly critics missed the boat. My entry makes it clear that, while I had problems with the film, I was completely under its spell from beginning to end and that Cheryl Lee's performance and David Lynch's direction were astonishing accomplishments. So imagine my surprise when I checked out a few contemporary reviews. Even knowing that Fire Walk With Me was not well received, I was not prepared for the sheer vitriol it was greeted with by reviewers of 1992. Canby continues... Oh, so there are actually some, uh... Some, uh... Uh, excerpts here so i i'm not reading the whole thing <laughs> so i'm referring to vincent camby the critic from the new york times um reading part of his review and i think because i'd already shared it in um or quoted it through uh lynch's biography in my uh, media roundup I, i'm not going to read the whole thing again but there's a. Uh, I, I refer to some parts of his review, I say be continues by shrugging in a too-cool-for-school way at Lynch's, quote, modest surrealism, in effect saying that he ain't no Bunuel. This kind of pseudo-scholarly attitude, prattling on about influences in lieu of actually engaging with the work, perplexes me. Firewalk With Me, if nothing else, is a film pulsating with emotion, To be unmoved, to not even get a glimmer of its depths, suggests a severe handicap, and I suspect discredits any critic from having the slightest idea what they are talking about. However, this seems to be a fairly typical reaction to the film. In Variety, Todd McCarthy watches one of the greatest performances of a troubled young woman in screen history, and yawns, Laura Palmer, after all the talk, is not a very interesting or compelling character, and and long before the climax, has become a tiresome teenager. At least TV Guide notes the harrowing but poignantly sympathetic quality of Cheryl Lee's performance, and The Globe and Mail, which offers up the lowest score, a nice round zero, Lambay's Lynch's work as disgusting and misanthropic, proving that at least they were affected. These reviews are the exception. The typical critical stance was to stand back, arms folded, protected by a smirk and eye roll, completely writing this film off. Whatever fundamental moral or aesthetic flaws *Firewalk Walk With Me carries, To wave it away so cavalierly constitutes a total disgrace to the critical profession. Being eight or nine when the film was released, and having no awareness of it, I was wondering if anyone who was around at the time and is a fan of the film would be willing to contribute their thoughts on what went wrong, and how they felt about it now and then. I've seen compelling and fascinating films overlooked or misunderstood, but I've never seen a work of such power completely and utterly dismissed. And then I end this entry with a bracket saying, In a few days, I'll finally write up an in-depth analysis of the whole series. Until then, I should get back to reviewing movies that don't take place in a small town in Wyoming, which I crashed out and wrote Washington State. So after my first viewing of Twin Peaks, for some reason I thought it took place in Wyoming. That's kind of funny. But for what it's worth, Twin Peaks Firewalk with me was the most powerful cinematic experience I've had in the past year, and that's saying something. So that was it for my... uh, Pieces devoted to Firewalk with Me for five and a half years, um, but there were many comments on this and other pieces. And then when I went on, uh, instead of just writing an in-depth analysis of Twin Peaks, I wrote a whole episode guide for the first half of the series. And of course, the film would come up here and there. And in the comments to this critical, uh, the, this response to the critics, where I say, "Was anyone who was who was around at the time can reading? Is anyone who was around at the time reading this?" And, Can you uh, offer some insight into how this happened? Uh, Tony Dayu, the blogger at Cinema Viewfinder, responded, and we had a great back and forth where he talked about being like 18 19 when the show came out and seeing the film for the first time and how he reacted to it and was really kind of my first guide through Twin Peaks, uh, Tony was. And so five and a half years later, he reached out to me when he was invited to do a series for a now-defunct film blog called To Be Continued, which was run by Peter Labuzo, whose podcast I quoted earlier in this podcast. It opened one of the installments. So Tony had been invited there to write for this site, and uh, he wanted to write about Twin Peaks, particularly Fire Walk Me. This was right around the time The Missing Pieces were scheduled to come out, the Blu-ray I don't think we knew the missing pieces would be there yet, but we knew a big Blu-ray set was coming and Twin Peaks was kind of in the air again. And so because of our past exchanges, he said, let's write back and forth, because the format of the essay of the uh, site was that you correspond, two critics correspond with one another about a film. So we did four letters back and forth, and I'm going to read excerpts from each one. So the first I wrote was called, Twin Peaks is Dead, Long Live Laura Palmer. And just to point out this, by coincidence, when he reached out to me, I was like three or four weeks into my great big deep dive back into Twin Peaks. So I happened to be watching it again, anyways, by coincidence. There were a lot of coincidences in this spring of 2014. So in the first letter, I started by quoting a song, saying, um, writing, When you told your secret name, I burst in flames and burned floating. Written by David Lynch, 1989. Tony, let's talk about the final day of Laura Palmer's life. Not the night with its cocaine binges, woodland orgies, and bloody murders, but the morning before as depicted in Twin Peaks Fire Walk With Me, 1992. Remember that soggy bowl of cereal, abandoned by the trembling teenager while her father tries to cheer her up? Or Laura's jittery mother stealing herself with a cigarette, her blank, exhausted interstate almost as ugly and jagged as her daughter's raw wound? And who can forget the ferocious hatred in Laura's eyes, years in the making, as she growls at her astonished father in her bedroom, Stay away from me. By the time we are submerged in Laura's woozy afternoon at high school, her disorientation overpowers us. Swooningly subjective dips and pans, time-lapsed clocks intercut with blurry crowds, high-angled perspectives pinning Laura to a ground that is sliding away beneath her feet, If these are not the most adventurous techniques David Lynch has ever employed, they are among his most compassionate. We've burrowed deeply into Laura's consciousness, losing ourselves on a death trip that few are willing to take. So the piece went on from there, and then Tony, in his response, uh, titled it, Poetry Becomes Prose in Firewalk With Me. And he wrote, Perhaps more than Firewalk With Me's relentlessly grim tone, It was the inordinate amount of time spent in Deer Meadow that irked fans the most. Fans had waited over a year to find out what happened to Cooper, trapped in another plane of existence at the end of the show, Audrey Horn caught in an explosion at a local bank, and many others. Lynch not only refused to answer those questions or revisit those characters, he traveled back to a time before the series and spent a half hour on Teresa Banks, whose only apparent link to Laura was that she was murdered by the supernatural Bob, Frank Silva. It nagged me that whenever I would revisit Fire Walk With Me, I was unfailingly drawn to the chapter, to this chapter and to the enigmatic Teresa Banks. As I grew into a more discerning viewer, it became apparent that the Teresa Banks chapter is essential to the Laura Palmer story. It's like a Rosetta Stone that unlocks Lynch's dramatic intentions for Fire Walk With Me. So that was Tony writing back to me. And then I responded to him with an essay letter called Back Door to the Black Lodge. And I wrote, in part of it, The upshot in Firewalk with me is that Bob possesses Leland becomes Bob equals Leland. The Black Lodge is no longer merely out there, it's within all of us, and we're all within it. Halfway through Firewalk with me, Laura hangs an eerie picture of an empty room with an open door on her wall, displacing the previous picture of an angel watching over little children. This new painting is a symbol of both existential dread and existential duty, During the night, Laura will pass through this door and enter the Black Lodge where, among other discoveries, she will find a time-warped Agent Cooper from the Twin Peaks finale. He will also comfort her in the film's poignant conclusion. If Cooper hasn't escaped in 25 years, neither has Lynch. Every single one of his subsequent features has taken place in this realm of uncertainty, where outside authority is unreliable, selfhood is malleable and fragile, and we can neither deny nor repress the darkness, trapped as we are within our own Garmin Bosia. Tony, to bring the conversation full circle, let's return to Laura Palmer. How did Lynch and Lee bring this previously mute character to life? What do you make of Laura's arc in the film, especially her decisions near the end? Does she become an active rather than passive participant in her own fate? Joel. And then, finally, Tony responded with a letter essay called Lynch's Affinity for Laura Palmer. And this is what he, Tony, wrote um, in response to my inquiries, or in, in part, at least. Laura, on the other hand, is a fully fleshed-out human being. Had Firewalk With Me been a different kind of film, not a horror film burdened with living up to the expectations of fickle fans, like myself, admittedly, perhaps Lee might have even been in contention for a more prominent award than the independent spirit she was justifiably nominated for. Lynch depicts the incandescent Laura in various harrowing ordeals. Some start from an erotic standpoint, but Lynch then subverts our expectations. For instance, in the pink room scene, where Lara is forced to allow her naive friend Donna, Moira Kelly, to tag along on what is essentially an outcall at the roadhouse, the lurid promise of nudity and eroticism is immediately sabotaged by the squalor of the noisy bar. Percussive industrial music plays so loudly over the scene that it's subtitled, while the men who solicit Lara look like grimy lumberjacks. The club's strobe lighting aptly transforms Laura's seductive dancing into the herky-jerky movements of a marionette, and Lynch tops it all off with an insert of the disgusting barroom floor strewn with cigarette stubs and ash. Each time we're made privy to Laura's circumstances, Lynch and Lee remind us that Laura is not the shallow Madonna whore cipher she was on TV. She's an active participant in her own murder mystery, laying all the groundwork for Cooper's case in her diary. She protects relative innocents like her two lovers, Bobby, Dana Ashbrook, and James, James Marshall, and her best friend Donna from getting mired in the same existential quicksand she finds herself in. Because of how Lee performs them, scenes previously only spoken about on the TV series gain new dimensions when we finally see them for ourselves. High on coke during a drug deal gone bad, Laura's initial shock at Bobby murdering the dealer gives way to an unstoppable case of the giggles as she confuses the dead man with Bobby's best friend Mike, whom he bears not the slightest resemblance to. And the disgust with which Laura treats the kind James at the intersection of Sparkwood and 21 speaks to her resentment that even this rebellious biker has managed to preserve more of his virtue than she ever had the opportunity to in herself. And Tony continued from there, talking about how this character so shaped uh, Lynch. So obviously our discussions were a big influence on many of the things I thought about particularly his um interest in firewalk with me as as like a fulcrum as a pivot point in Lynch's work which is something he discussed very early on in the comments and response and i would note too that even the pieces i'm reading aloud in full there's often good comments on them so if you check out the links in the show notes there's there's more to explore there beyond just what i'm sharing here Soon after this exchange with Tony, I worked on a video essay for my site. It was my first video essay in about a year and a half at that point, and uh, it was non-narrated, just clips from Lynch's films, which I wove together to kind of tell almost like a single story, as if they were all telling the same story, but evolving from one another. So it covered Lynch's first six films, up to Fire Walk Me, including uh, Twin Peaks episodes as well, and trace the whole journey of somebody trying to find who their abuser is, inventing a kind of heroic figure who rescues them, finding out the hero themselves is corrupted, maybe complicit even in the abuse, and then facing the abuser themselves. There's a destruction, and then there's a coda where I intercut a firewalk with me with uh, the elephant man, the scene of Laura getting into bed and seeing herself from the portrait standing in the doorway with John Merrick lying in bed, moving the pillows around to lie down and basically die. So uh, the Fire Walk With Me is throughout this essay in various parts. The opening is a intercutting of the end of a racer head and the scene where Bob comes in through Laura's window, weaving those two together. But the clip I'm going to play here lends itself more to the audio form where There are lots of different clips kind of weaving together. In this case, uh, it starts with Laura and Leland in her bedroom. Then uh, Laura gets up. She stands in the doorway, sees her reflection. We see uh, Frederick Treves, the character played by Anthony Hopkins, wandering through the London street uh, in The Elephant Man into an alley. He peers into a grimy window. And then we see John Merrick, The Elephant Man, walking with a hood. We see Leland holding the portrait of Laura, all uh, jagged and bloody after he's broken the frame with Sarah screaming from the TV show. We see Sherilyn Fenn's character rubbing her hair and wild at heart. Uh, Leland wiping blood on the photo, the Sherilyn Fenn character collapsing, and then Leland touching his head to the portrait. And then there's a moment from Blue Velvet where Sandy is confronted by her father, and uh, then we see Laura and Leland at dinner, and we'll end there. So that's the visual of it, here's how it sounded. And I also included uh, audio from Inland Empire in this, as you can th- see, furthering the ideas that I was illustrating.
0: We embraced a warm and loving embrace. Nothing was held. We were, in this moment, one. Just awaken. See, I've already gone places. I just want to stay where I am. And the variation. A little girl went out to play. Lost in the marketplace. As if half-born. Then, not through the marketplace, you see that, don't you? But through the alley behind the marketplace. This is the way to the palace. But it isn't something. wrong. You didn't wash your hands before you sat down to dinner, did you?
1: That video went up in the middle of June, which I designated David Lynch month on the site, June 2014. And again, by coincidence, this was just a few weeks after the missing pieces were announced. It was a few months before season three would be announced. And uh, to climax this month, I posted uh, back-to-back pieces, uh, two-part David Lynch retrospective. One part I called The Trees, where I focused on each of the individual works, including not just his films and TV episodes, but commercials. And then the second part was called The Forest, which was uh, about looking at all of his work as a whole and weaving between the feature films and seeing how themes developed, how aesthetic motifs developed over time. Looking at his work as evolutionary in that sense. So, in The Eye of the Duck, a David Lynch retrospective, 1967 to 2013, part one, The Trees, here's a couple parts I thought were worth pulling out now and revisiting. The heartbreaking conclusion of the film can appear baffling as well, with its angels and bright light. Why is Renette Pulaski saved while well, poor Laura can't be? Up till now, the movie has completely subverted the series' initial conception of a corrupted Laura. Who invited her own death and was somehow responsible for the sexual violence enacted upon her? Why then does the angel neglect her, and why is her death her only, and why is death her only opportunity for release? As with all the spiritual beings in the movie, the angels are symbols of a deeper psychological, or rather, spiritual reality. Laura sees an angel disappear from the portrait on her wall, which has already been displaced by the open door. When Renette prays on the train in the train car, she begins her prayer with the words, "Father." The point is that Laura has no father to pray to, her supposed protector is the very one who has violated her. While Renette is visited by an angel, Laura is confronted with her own reflection, which morphs into Bob. And yet when she dies and finds herself sitting sorrowfully in the red room with Agent Cooper's hand on her shoulder, Laura is greeted by an angel. Perhaps this is Laura's dying realization that she is not to blame for her suffering, and is a good person after all. Perhaps it is Lynch's pained admission that only by dying could Laura escape the evil that befell her father, or perhaps the appearance of the angel is simpler than that. Perhaps this is a deeply personal gesture on Lynch's part, an act of charity and reconciliation, reaching out to embrace the character he created and infused with such suffering. In the world of his own own characters, the filmmaker is God, And so Lynch offers Laura peace as only a creator can. Coupled with the usually cagey director's statements about falling in love with Laura Palmer and wanting to see her, this final scene, and indeed the whole project, feels like a personal act of penance for achieving popularity through her pain. As with all acts of penance, at least all true acts of penance, this would have real consequences. And like Cooper trapped in the lodge to comfort our schoolgirl of the sorrows, as Lynch biographer Greg Olson calls her, Lynch himself suffered for his act of generosity. Fire Walk With Me was reviled by critics, ignored at the box office, and rejected by most Twin Peaks fans. Yet Lynch emerged from this roller coaster ride of Twin Peaks, a changed filmmaker. His dreams of mainstream success dashed, but his commitment to express a darker, more sensitive vision of human suffering strengthened. It would be a while, however, before he could follow through. Lynch would not make another feature film for half a decade. So it's interesting now, looking back on these pieces, to see certain threads emerge and evolve. So, for example, in my first review, I didn't mention the ending of the film at all. I just kind of stopped dead in the tracks with the point where Laura discovers Leland's the the uh, abuser. I don't really go any further into the film than that. Then when I discuss it with Tony, I dig in a little deeper. I find some stuff with the spirit world that's more compelling to me than it was initially. And then, in this piece, I'm focusing on that final scene. I still haven't um come up with my reading of it that I shared in this podcast that was a big part of Journey through Twin Peaks. the idea of of the kind of subtle mechanics in a way of uh the like poetic mechanics, if you will of of the angel's significance and Laura as the kind of operator of that now that actually really began to emerge for me in the first time when I talked to. Uh, John Thorne, for my uh, interview that went up in the fall. I talked to him, I think, sometime in the summer of 2014, and then it happened to go up the week, like the actual week that season three was announced a few days later, if I I recall correctly, Um, or or it was like scheduled for that time. So just all of these coincidences, and uh, in this discussion – we got into this idea, some some stuff in his essay called The Transformation of Laura Palmer, about his reading of why she gets the ring and how her story is transformed by Lynch, perhaps uh, certainly while shooting and maybe even in editing to further empower her from what was intended. And this had a big influence on my own reading, although I kind of went in a different direction. So I'm talking to John, and so, so sorry, this essay is uh, from... October 2014, Unwrapping Twin Peaks, uh, not an essay, an interview, a conversation with John Thorne, editor of Wrapped in Plastic. So he was the publisher of that popular fan magazine for over a decade. I say to him, in another part of the essay, you talk about Laura in the painting, when she stands in the doorway during her dream and looks out at her sleeping self. And you see her at that point as sort of the bad Laura. You know, like the good and bad Dale in the Black Lodge. Again, this is me speaking here. You see a good and a bad Laura. The bad Laura's in the painting, looking out on her. I feel like, honestly, personally, I'm a little more with Martha Ockhamson with that, because I feel like it's an empowered Laura looking out from the painting, or a distanced Laura, but I don't necessarily know that she's bad. Do you feel that it's the bad Laura because of the narrative structure? Because after that, she goes and she does this, sort of those crazy things, prostituting herself at the roadhouse, and that it's a transition into that? Or do you feel that something in the dream sequence itself to indicate that this is sort of her bad side taking over. And um, I responded, or John responded rather, sorry, John responded to my question by saying, I'll just answer it by saying that the film seems better for me if I start to interpret it that way. With any Lynch film, and that's the beauty of his films, if you interpret it in a different way and it's sensible and it works and you come out of the film feeling, yeah, that's satisfying, I understand it, then that's it. For me, if she's behaving this way in the following scenes, why would you think that she would be this visionary figure, already seen transcending at that point? It doesn't work for me. And I responded to him, I loved your comparison of Donna and Renette in the roadhouse scene. I don't think I'd ever heard anyone else phrase it, where basically you posit them as doppelgangers. I think you might even use that word. And then there's something you didn't mention, but that occurred to me after you did that, which is that when Leland sees Donna and Laura on the couch, he flashes to Laura and Renette. And John says, wow, that, that's excellent, yeah. And I said, what this started me thinking is, well, okay, we know the Donna-Laura arc, which is that Laura saves Donna, right? And she saves her because of the light she sees and the way you put it was very nice. You disagreed with Nogamson, and I actually agree with you over her uh, over her here. I think it's at least more compelling to think that the white light is not an angel showing Laura the way, but Lara herself realizing she's got to save her friend, right? And he says, yeah. And I said, so then I thought, how does that happen with Renette? At the end of the movie, you said you feel like the angels are coming. They're giving her the ring, I thought. And to be fair, I, I did read someone else suggest this. I think it was Christy Desmet. She says, Laura is the angel, or Laura manifests something. And I didn't quite know what to make of that before. But looking at it as her saving Donna, setting her up to save Renette at the end, it makes me think, what if she manifests the angel for her friend? Because she doesn't think she's that she, Laura, is worthy, but she thinks that she has the goodness in or she has the goodness in her to save Renette and maybe that's what brings her the ring. And John said, That's a great way of looking at it. You know, I'd have to go back and look at it, but it does seem that Laura is a little surprised at the presence of the angel. And I said, Oh yeah, I don't think she does it in the sense that she knows what she is doing. I think it's almost a psychic thing. That she in her goodness or whatever hears Renette praying. And this is interesting too. Renette begins the prayer by saying, Father, Father help me, Father look at me, she says. Meanwhile, Laura's father is murdering her, so she can't she can't relate to that prayer to herself. But hearing that, it plays into your idea of her becoming more active at the end. So that's my little tangent that you sort of started me on, so thank you for that. And John said, that's a very interesting way of looking at it. I hadn't considered it. That's intriguing, the idea that maybe Laura is the source of her nuts angel. Yeah, I want to go back to look at it. That's a good thing. Yeah, I have to think about it, but certainly intriguing. So that... There, that conversation, certainly while I was researching and reading and formulating questions for the interview, but I think even to a certain extent in that moment talking to him is where I came up with the idea, or sort of synthesized the idea from all of these different influences, of how I interpret the ending that is so crucial to how I kind of see Twin Peaks overall, and certainly to the Journey Through Twin Peaks video series that I was beginning to publish around this time, so... In October, I think two days before the season three announcement, I uh, just happened to kick off my most ambitious uh, project of any sort that I've ever done online or, uh, you know, and uh, it was Journey Through Twin Peaks, the four part video series. Now it's going to be six parts with the return going into the different aspects of the show, chronologically moving through it as a narrative. And I've talked a lot about this project in various forms and essays on podcasts, but I want to play some clips here that relate to Firewalk with me. So I reached the part four section, which was all devoted to Firewalk with me. It ended up being my longest part, even though it was focused on the shortest amount of material of any of the uh, parts of the series. And there was, I think eight or nine chapters within it that I released as separate videos on YouTube. So the first one, chapter 20, introducing Firewalk with me, um, there is, uh, the, the the opening of it is like a clip from PBS, special that was uh, on in the, uh, actually before the film during season two, and a guest uh, whose name is actually Guest, Judith Guest, the author of Ordinary People, she has some comments about violence against women on the show, how it disturbs her, but how the creators seem to think. That there's a complexity, that, that where there's good, and where there's evil, there must also be good. And she, it's a very fascinating quote. So I opened the whole section on Firewalk Me with that. And then I have a montage set to She Would Die for Love, which is uh, the Firewalk Me theme, but with lyrics that relate to Laura and Leland. And then there's a Cheryl Lee quote I use on the screen next to a shot of sort of a bountiful buffet, which is actually from Leland's wake, interestingly enough, in the show all this food. And it's uh, uh, Cheryl Lee saying, as she was quoted in Brad Duke's Reflections book, that Twin Peaks is a lot of fun to talk about. But ultimately, it's about a girl who was abused and murdered and wrapped in plastic. And it's very sobering when you think of that. And I, on the bottom half of the screen, I run the party land, cigarettes and beer cans all over the floor with the quote. So, so this montage was something I actually came up with earlier, even though I kind of mostly created it as it unfolds. I jumped ahead to do this. When I read that quote again after revisiting the book I thought this has to be in there as a kind of a gateway into that this is how my narration opens after all of that that whole montage in the beginning I uh, this this is how I set up the film with my words after using the images Twin Peaks Firewalk With Me is a most unusual TV spinoff <laughs> defying expectations it remains controversial among Twin Peaks fans indeed even among the show's cast and crew. Is this feature film a logical extension of Season 2, or a return to the pilot episode? Should it be separated completely from the series? Firewalk With Me has been placed among the worst movies of all time, and also among the very best. And before I actually published that video, I put out another one that I just wanted to get out at the end of the year, because 2014 had been such a Twin Peaks heavy year. I, I got it out on New Year's Eve, and this became my most popular work in any format, anywhere, anything. It's the Seven Facts About Twin Peaks Firewalk with me. And I'm going to play uh, almost all of it here, the whole almost the whole video, because uh, this was just a key expression of my take on Twin Peaks, and again, was the the thing that resonated, it seemed, with the most people. And It certainly helps to have a catchy title, of course, as well. But I, I really liked this video, was proud of it, and was happy that... Uh, You know, by my modest standards, it had uh, a fair amount of success. First, Twin Peaks was unfashionable in 1992. This is an understatement, and a complete reversal from 1990. Initially praised as television savior, David Lynch made for great copy. Aesthetic radical, cultural conservative, and glamorous celebrity. The boy next door delivering subversive surrealism to middle America's living rooms. What a story for the postmodern 90s. But if the media flattered Lynch, it expected to be flattered in return. If Twin Peaks was a work of art, they needed overt reassurance. And if it was just a joke, they wanted to be in on it.
0: I've heard about you.
1: When the early second season insisted on patience and plunged into darkness, the critics enthusiastic consensus was flipped on its head. Twin Peaks Breaks All the Rules became Twin Peaks Doesn't Play Fair. The press swiftly rebranded Lynch as a cynical huckster, laughing at his own audience. The story stuck, and for this reason, any Twin Peaks movie would have been regarded as an elaborate hoax and widely rejected in 1992. Second, Twin Peaks was interested in Cooper and the town. Beyond the media's hostility and the public's disinterest, a small but devoted following was still drawn to the canceled TV show. To build a niche franchise upon this base, the story must continue its late season 2 recovery by painting the picture of a wacky community against an elaborate mythological backdrop, while following a more complicated Agent Cooper. Twin Peaks, meaning the fans, lead showrunner Mark Frost, and the narrative momentum of the show itself, all pointed in this direction. I have a definite feeling. It will be a place both wonderful and strange. But Frost was busy with Storyville, his directorial debut, and Twin Peaks Firewalk With Me was Lynch's personal project. He had mostly been absent from the second half of the series, when this new direction took hold, and he did not want to continue it. Third, David Lynch was interested in Laura. For Lynch, the magic of Twin Peaks died with the end of the Laura Palmer investigation. The murdered teenager embodied mystery, darkness, and beauty, qualities that have always attracted Lynch as an artist. The show's early quest to learn her secrets reflected his own burning desire, so he reset the clock with a prequel, zooming in on the not-yet-dead girl. For the director, as well as actor Cheryl Lee, the object of Twin Peaks had become the subject. The film asks viewers to reset their priorities, and reorient their identification. Away from the comforting figure responding to a crisis? to the victim whose life provides this crisis. This takes us head-on into a darkness and disorientation only suggested by the series. Fourth, Fire Walk With Me believes in the spirit world. Many viewers who haven't watched the show assume that Bob and the Lodge mythology are figments of Laura's imagination, self-defense against a more terrible truth. The full context of Twin Peaks contradicts this reading. As do many passages in the film itself. Even at its most focused and realistic, Twin Peaks maintains a cosmic, supernatural context. This can be a troubling distraction for anyone caught up in the intense subjectivity of Laura's life. Bob is real. But Lynch always uses fantastical elements for allegory rather than escape. If the Lodge spirits exist independently of our protagonist's psychodrama, it is because the film has something to say. About a larger struggle between the forces of darkness and light. It's up to us to determine Laura's place in this struggle. Fifth, Fire Walk With Me is about sexual abuse.
0: Did you sometimes have the feeling that Laura was harboring some Awful secret
1: throughout the show, there are vague, excited references to Lara's mystery, her darkness black and dark, and especially her secrets and
0: around those secrets she built a fortress
1: firewalk with me reminds us that these coy signifiers refer to something all too real: the repeated rape of an adolescent by her own father. The psychological effects of this abuse are portrayed with devastating realism. <laughs> alienating fans accustomed to Twin Peaks as entertainment. Laura was always a victim of incest. This fact has never actually been in doubt. Instead, the series suggests that her abuser, himself a captive of evil forces, was not responsible for his actions. You've been a good vehicle. But the film blurs Bob's and Leland's motivations, complicates Leland's self-awareness, and ultimately denies the Devil Made Me Do It excuse. Most importantly, Fire Walk With Me places the pain of the victim at the story's dead center. No intermediary figures like Cooper or Donna or Jacoby can mute Laura's agony. The film privileges direct perception over clinical contextualization. This is trauma without filter. Sixth, Fire Walk With Me subverts Twin Peaks. The film often suggests that we are watching a funhouse reflection of the show. It's doppelganger, if you will. I've had, I can't tell you how many cups of coffee in my life, and this, this is one of the best. Firewalk With Me trades distance wide shots for impressionistic close-ups, an eclectic ensemble for individual perspective, playful pastiche for unremitting seriousness, and spooky suggestion for graphic revelation. In doing so, it deliberately rejects the show's signature qualities. Despite its many references to the TV series, this feature film actually does stand alone as an independent work of art. Viewers unfamiliar with the series often appreciate it more than fans with their built-in expectations. Embraced as a vivid sensory experience, Fire Walk With Me is charged with tragic grandeur and exquisite sensitivity to sound Color, rhythm, and gesture. We, however, are reaching Firewalk with Me as the culmination of a journey, and it is that too. Seventh, Firewalk with Me fulfills Twin Peaks. The opening scenes of the pilot indelibly establish Twin Peaks as a series of discoveries about Laura Palmer. Firewalk with Me keeps this promise. The movie is flush, with callbacks to the iconography of the first season. When revisited, these coolly alluring images become overpoweringly poignant, secret passageways between two very different worlds. They whisper sorrowfully to us that Twin Peaks' magical mood was carved by the psychic reverberations of Laura's suffering. I looked into her eyes that were clear. It was like she was Laura again. Strangely, the TV show needs Firewalk with Me more than Firewalk with Me needs the TV show. Not only does the movie deepen our appreciation of what we've already seen, it continues Lynch's work in the final episode, reconciling the show's original iconography with its imported mythology. Fire Walk With Me restores the show's dramatic center of gravity, connects the supernatural mythos to human reality, and finally achieves spiritual triumph. In Chapter Twenty Two, Not So Special Agents, I talk about uh, Cooper's relationship with the Deer Meadow sequence, uh, John Thorne's theory about it, and uh, how it relates to Cooper on the series. So here's what I said there. I'll play a fairly long uh, passage here as well. This gets into some of the stuff I've talked throughout the podcast, but in a you know the music and the voices from the series kind of illustrating it, and of course. Uh, the visuals that I put with this were something, one of the things that compelled me to want to make this video essay in the first place, illustrating John Thorne's idea of uh, how Lars' dream and Cooper's dream kind of mirror each other conceptually and visually, and actually by, uh, I- interestingly enough, this is what I'm currently tweeting out each day for my Journey Through Twin Peaks images, the images from this passage. To hammer home this point... Chet Desmond replaces Couldn't Dale Cooper it, yeah, as the lead investigator. Chet, give Sam Stanley the glad hand. Aloof, reticent, and kind of a dick, What time is it, Stanley? Chet is as much the anti-Cooper <laughs> as Deer Meadow is the anti-Twin Peaks, and Teresa Banks is the anti-Laura Palmer.
0: No one came to claim the body. No known next to kin. I figure this whole office furniture included is worth $27,000.
1: Sam Stanley, meanwhile, spoofs Cooper's brilliant powers of observation Make a by suggesting they are essentially pointless. Who's the towhead?
0: Those drugs are
1: legal. When a somber, perplexed Agent Cooper finally appears in the film himself, even he cannot restore our confidence in the FBI. It's 10, 10 a.m. John Thorne, enwrapped Wrapped 16. in Plastic, concludes that the entire first act of Firewalk With Me is Cooper's dream.
0: I was worried about today because of the dream I told you about.
1: Beginning with Teresa's body floating downstream, and ending when we cut to Twin Peaks one year later. According to this theory, Cooper actually conducted the Deer Meadow investigation himself. In sleep, he seeks a more objective perspective
0: We sure do need a good wake-me-up, don't we, Agent Desmond.
1: by imagining Chet Desmond in his place. We sure
0: do need a good wake-me-up, don't we, Agent Desmond. Yeah, we do, Sam. much as later
1: Lynch characters will project themselves into new personas. After reliving the Teresa Banks case, Gordon? Cooper himself appears in his own dream. Gordon to receive visions and cryptic clues from the lodge. Who do you think this is there? Just as he did on the show. And three. We live inside a dream. This theory was acknowledges he? David Lynch's original intention for Cooper. But where did he go? Who was supposed to be a more active presence in Fire Walk with Me before Kyle MacLachlan decreased his involvement? Again. It also addresses our own desire for Cooper to play a central role in the film.
0: having a bad dream anyway.
1: Thorne points out that if this is Cooper's dream, it reflects the structure of Laura's dream later in the movie. Both dreams would begin with an omniscient viewpoint, followed by the dreamer's own appearance within the dream, a visitation by a time-traveling character with a message, and the impossible reflection of these characters within a framed image, positioning them in two places at once. This reading prepares Cooper for his central, heroic, and visionary role in the series. Well, perhaps.
0: Lately I've been filled with the knowledge that the killer will strike again.
1: But Fire Walk With Me is not only a prequel to Twin Peaks. It is also a follow-up. One more thing, Albert. And its portrait of Cooper is shaped by his fall. Separating from Mark Frost and resetting the clock, Lynch had the opportunity to restore Cooper's early prowess. Instead, Cooper remains as confused, shaken, and powerless as he was through much of season two. I played a clip from the Spirit World chapter, chapter 23, before talking about the mythology of Frost and Theosophy and how it plays out. But here is how I open that chapter, talking about the idea of, you know, from the, from the beginning of the series, it was this idea of detective moves across location toward the victim subject. So Cooper through Twin Peaks trying to reach Laura Palmer. And then in Firewalk with me, all of those motifs are kind of separated and subverted. So Cooper becomes this ineffectual agent who's absent a lot of the time. Laura becomes actually the focus and the guiding presence of the film. And then with the location, uh, that's interesting. It's like we move through a sort of series of alternatives to the Twin Peaks of the show, and I discuss that here.
0: As above, so below.
1: Cooper, our hero, has been severed from his agency. What about the terrain he moves across? Will it, too, be reversed and subverted? Firewalk With Me answers this question in several ways. The town of Twin Peaks is reimagined as the bleak, crummy deer meadow, with a sheriff's office that looks more like a shabby home. You want to hear about our specials? A broken-down diner that proudly displays its lack of amenities. We don't have any. And a trailer park in lieu of a luxurious hotel. Even the weather has changed. Gone is the pilot's omnipresent fog, although the sunny skies only emphasize our befuddlement. Nothing about Deer Meadow is comforting.
0: Don't go in there further with it. There's nothing good about it.
1: Yet whatever lies beneath its flimsy surfaces may be even more threatening. Thank you, Jack. We can sense why characters would trap themselves here, fearing what's even worse. You
0: see, I've already gone places. Just want to stay where I am.
1: It's point made, Fire Walk With Me finally restores the familiar sights of the actual Twin Peaks, with its middle-class comfort replacing Deer Meadow's poverty and corruption. And then the film shows us something even more horrible than the superficial ugliness of Deer Meadow. The charm and beauty of Twin Peaks mean absolutely nothing to Laura Palmer. She slides helplessly across the shiny facade of this indifferent environment, passing through its people as if she's already a ghost. Rejecting both Deer Meadow and Twin Peaks, the film finally settles on its true location. This would look nice on your wall. The shadow self of this external reality. The man behind the mask
0: is looking for the book with the pages torn out. He is going toward the hiding
1: place. What fans of the show will recognize as the Black Lodge. no longer confined to the woods or occasional nighttime visitations it spills out into the sunlight and laura isn't safe anywhere chapter 24 the last seven days of laura palmer as many parts that i want to uh, sample this was where i really was able to meditate on her character kind of the heart of journey through twin peaks in a way In the late 60s, David Lynch became a filmmaker because he wanted to see his paintings move. Each scene of Fire Walk With Me exists as a moving painting, allowing Lynch to luxuriate in the beauty, sadness, fear, and compassion of Laura's world, carefully studying each aspect of her personality in turn. But if Lynch is a painter at heart, he is also a storyteller. His creative energy is drawn toward making connections, all of his feature films are characterized by a rich tension between devotion to the moment and desire for the whole this duality of devotion and desire characterizes laura palmer's life she is the greatest subject this painter has ever had as presented on the show she is full of contradictions and the film confirms this multitude of fragmented identities miraculously Due in large part to Cheryl Lee's astonishing performance, Laura emerges as the most believable character in all of Twin Peaks.
0: Okay, Donna.
1: But a problem lingers. Let's go. Because Fire Walk With Me is not just a series of Lynchian portraits. It is a story. And even if its passage transforms Laura into a subjective presence, its preordained ending reduces her to passive object once again. When Laura speaks of angels, she is acknowledging her own doom, but also unconsciously opening a door. The shooting script does not even acknowledge the absence of angels. They are simply never mentioned at all. Although pessimistic, Laura's reference allows the slightest sliver of hope to creep into this story. The last days of Laura Palmer are not simply a grim catalog of horrors. They depict her growth as a character, her movement toward discovery as well as death. In this extended passage, I talk about Laura's growth as a character throughout the film. The movie continues past the point where Laura hits rock bottom. Where can she go from here, except onward to her grisly destruction? But Laura has more to discover than the identity of her tormentor. Firewalk With Me's most important narrative journey is Laura's discovery of herself. This time, we are completely in sync with the journey, making the discoveries along with her. Over Laura's final week, she has no. been learning about her own capacity for growth, freedom, and generosity.
0: Just just sit here for a moment.
1: The full knowledge of her trauma is as necessary as it is terrible. Laura, honey? By fighting against the deceit, Laura has already sure. proven herself stronger than her father. By crossing boundaries and dreams, piecing together clues from different levels of reality, she also discovers an agency. One of the most powerful images of the film indicates both dissociation and liberation. One of these Lars encompasses and transcends the other. This is one of the few moments when Laura can look at herself with something other than hatred. What about this, James? Despite Laura's willfully nasty treatment of her friends, in key moments, she accesses a deep well of compassion. Both her cruelty and her kindness are linked to self-loathing. Are you mad at me for wearing something of yours? Because Laura tries to preserve the virtues in others. I don't want you to wear my stuff. That she thinks she has lost. And finally, the idea of Lara this collection of iconographic elements in the show in a way and suggestive themes comes together as a fully realized human being here. If Laura is going to defeat Bob she needs to acknowledge something that Leland and even Cooper never could. She is not the good Laura or the bad Laura. She is Laura Palmer. Good and bad. A fully realized and responsible human being. Victim of her father but hero of her own story. David Lynch has realized this, and so, finally, have we. Will she? And finally, Chapter 25, She Would Die for Love, was the first time I really laid out my full reading of the ending, so I went into this in a lot more depth, obviously, in uh, this podcast, in the entire part focusing on the question of why was Laura Palmer killed and building it up, and going into some things I don't get into in the video, such as the possibility that renette was an intended victim there is some text on the screen which obviously you can't see but you know this is all meant to be watched anyways but to give you a little bit of an evocation of it here and the part that is audio uh uh, we're gonna play this here before i play this excerpt please uh, rate review and subscribe on apple Podcasts. you can support this podcast on patreon.com slash lost in the movies and i'll see you later today for another archive episode
0: I just remember feeling that I knew that Laura was gonna go through all of this stuff. And I just kept kind of saying to David, I, I I, want to find, it's not that you can find a reason why somebody goes through this stuff. Somewhere I wanted to still feel a sense of hope. You know, to not just have it end with, that was the end, that was her life, that somewhere, somehow, some way,
1: her hope or her spirit could live on. Slowly, the angels emerge. No one, perhaps not even David Lynch himself, can explain everything that happens in his movies. The imagery is suggestive, without being conclusive, and we must make our own interpretations. Laura believes the angels have abandoned her, and blames herself for her own loneliness. The angels have not gone away, but they are only visible to those who can see past the limits of their own reality.
0: That's only because you won't let me in on any of it.
1: You're
0: not gonna see Bobby,
1: are you? Laura, who despises herself, cannot share Renette's desperate faith and because her own father is her tormentor, she could never speak the words of her friend's prayer. But can she hear them? The Ring has reanimated frozen limbs, offered travel between worlds, and accompanied knowledge and power over Leland and Bob. Unlike the ceiling fan and the record player, it is a circle characterized by stillness rather than perpetual motion promising an order and unity absent from Laura's own life. Mike wields the ring but in this moment he is locked out of the train car by Bob. Fear has closed this door. What can open it? Laura is trapped not only in the train car but also in her illusion of a closed, hostile, fragmented world around her what Hindu tradition would call Maya. There is a way out. Moksha breaks samsara, the cycle of birth and rebirth, and it reunites Atman, the little self, with Brahman, the big self, the one behind the many.
0: When there are chances for reflections, there can always be two or more. Only when we are everywhere. Will there be just one?
1: David Lynch has subsequently hinted that this is precisely what Laura discovers at the end of Firewalk with me.
0: And then there was a time when I cried because I was so happy, because I saw what it was. awake.
1: But with Bob's voice spilling poison in her ear, what hope does she have to escape this trap? (laughs) Bob's voice is not the only one in the train car. Renette cannot help Laura, but can Laura help Renette? Is Renette whom Laura views as a corrupted self, even worth saving? Earlier in the film, in a flash of white light, Laura leapt to the rescue of Donna, her idealized self. Now her hands are tied. But Laura sees her friend's tears. She hears her cries for help. At the end of the movie, Renette looks dead. Only the full context of the series tells us that she survives. And because of Lynch's last-minute revisions to the final episode, we even know that she recovers. But how does she escape the train car? And how does Laura finally defeat Bob? Bob cannot possess Laura, and Leland cannot control her only because she takes the ring. Laura is able to take this ring only because Renette opens the train car door. Renette opens this door only because her hands are untied. I believe that Laura Palmer has brought this angel into the train car to save Renette. Whether or not she realizes this, Laura's love is stronger than her fear. Superficially, she will die for this. Fundamentally, she is freeing herself.